If you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight. <clears throat> in my preaching class, I joked with Pastor Ben about if he ever struggled with the height of the pulpit. And he said, yeah. So I'm really glad for this little hill here. It makes it really nice so I don't have to do any editing from 30,000 feet. Um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to focus in verses 5 through 11, but I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. So 2 Corinthians 2. <clears throat> for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs." So prior to this letter, Paul had had a painful visit at the Corinthian church where he found many problems in the church and he departed from there. And following this, he writes another letter which is referred to as the painful letter or the severe letter when he says in verse 4 that he wrote to them out of much affliction and pain and sorrow. He writes this letter to address the problems that he that were present in the Corinthian church. And and Paul writes this to test the Corinthians to see if they were going to be obedient in everything and deal do the difficult work of dealing with sin in the life of the church. This is what he's mentioning in verses 5 through 6 when he talks about this person causing pain. He says that this one, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. This was the faithful response of the Corinthians to discipline this person out of the church because of their sin and because he was not repentant. We don't actually know what the offense was. Some people think it's the, it's the sexual immorality that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 5, but we're not exactly sure, but I, I lean toward it not being that, specifically because of what Paul says in verse 10 here. He says that anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Um, it, it would be weird, I think, for Paul to be forgiving somebody for a sin that was not directly aimed toward Paul. Um, and so it seems that this, this sin was some kind of opposition against Paul's apostolic authority. And, and what Paul is saying in this passage is that he's forgiven this man. And, and perhaps he's, he's tactfully removing some of the pain that this man caused. He says, if I've forgiven anything, if I've forgiven anything, he he seems to be uh, minimizing the pain that it caused him so that it would make restoration of this person easier in the life of the Corinthian church. 
So the surrounding context of the passage that we're going to look at is that somebody had sinned to the point of formal church discipline. Paul wrote to them and told them to deal with this sin. And the Corinthians had responded to this by disciplining the man who was sinning. And what we're seeing in this passage is that the discipline actually brought about the correct result. We're seeing that this man has sinned and that he has repented of his sin. And now what Paul is doing in this passage is he's telling the Corinthians to forgive and restore this man. Everything in this passage, or in the passage we're considering, is describing how the church should respond to the genuinely repentant. And while this context refers specifically to restoring someone after the process of church discipline, the forgiveness being described here is not categorized just to when church discipline happens. The the kind of restoration and forgiveness that's being described in this passage is the kind of restoration and forgiveness that we are told is the mark of genuine Christ-likeness. Forgiveness is a defining mark of genuine Christ-likeness, and it is the grace that, that keeps the unity of the church and keeps the relationships in the church strong and God-glorifying. Some of Jesus' last words from the cross, we remember, was him asking for forgiveness for the very people who were killing him. When, when Peter came to Jesus asking how many times he was supposed to forgive his sinning brother, he said seven times, and Jesus said no. Seventy times seven. And we're also told that Jesus says, Jesus says to his disciples that people would know that we were his followers by the, the way that we loved one another. And one of the greatest acts of love that we can do as fallen people is to forgive other fallen people. And so as we examine this passage, we're examining it from the perspective of people who have been forgiven by Christ. So we should be forgiving and we are coming to this passage as people who are reconciled to God by Christ. So we should be pursuing reconciliation with people. And what we see in this passage is that we should restore the repentant because it guards against self-destroying sorrow and Satan's destructive strategies. We're going to unpack this statement. But before we can get to how we should restore the repentant, I just want to put like a little disclaimer in there that when I'm speaking of repentance, I'm assuming genuine repentance because this man was genuinely repentant. So genuine repentance is sorrow for sin against God that results in accepting and exhausting the necessary consequences of our sin. I think that Paul gives a really good description of what genuine repentance looks like. If you turn a couple pages over to chapter 7 in 2 Corinthians, turn over to chapter 7 and we'll look at verses 10 through 11. Paul says here, Actually, let me start in verse 9. He says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So genuine repentance is sorrow before God for our sin and pursuing at all cost to clear our account. So I'm assuming genuine repentance here. So let's consider that first part of what we're seeing in this passage, that we should restore the repentant. Um, and what this passage shows us is that we do that by give, graciously forgiving our offender, encouraging them, and affirming them of our love. We see this in verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> it says here, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the, the first thing that Paul tells us here is that rather than continuing to discipline this person who is genuinely repentant and, and seeking to punish them beyond what God requires of them, he says, turn to them and forgive this person. And I'm using the word restoration rather than just forgiveness here because I think that restoration kind of encapsulates all of what Paul is telling us to do with the person who is repentant. So he says to forgive them and he says to comfort them. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, reaffirm your love for him. So I don't just think it's forgiveness. I think it's full restoration of this person. And, and restoration refers to helping someone regain their spiritual footing so they can walk in joyful obedience to Christ. Restoration is helping somebody regain their spiritual footing so they can walk in joyful obedience to Christ. And we do this, first of all, by forgiving the repentant person. This word for forgiveness here is not the typical word used in the New Testament to describe forgiveness. Um, usually when we think of forgiveness, we're thinking about clearing away the moral obligations of a broken law. But this word here actually is, is focusing more on the gracious disposition behind forgiveness. It, it literally means to show graciousness through forgiveness. You know, that one of the treasures of the gospel that I hope that we think about often is how amazing it is that God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. I, I hope that that's, that's a thought that we think about on a regular basis that fills our heart with joy and leads us to praise God for His salvation. But one of the secondary blessings of the gospel is that we actually have a real and tangible basis to forgive other people. We, we actually have a real reason to forgive people. When someone sins against us, we are able to look at Jesus Christ to see how we have been treated by God because of him and then offer forgiveness because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So when, when someone sins against us, our first response should not be this, this like moral calculation of how much this person owes me and all of the hoops are going to have to jump to, jump through to become a, a meaningful part of my life again. Our first response should be to remember how God has treated us because of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And then we should seek to apply that same grace to the person who is sinning against us. In fact, it's often the sins of difficult people in our lives that help to remind us 
of the wonderful grace that we have received in the gospel because it forces us to actually think about what Christ has done in our lives so that we can apply it to those people's lives. And, and if we have a difficult person in our life, maybe it's because we, we don't remind ourselves enough of the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus Christ. So when we restore the repentant, we begin by offering the gracious forgiveness that we have received from Jesus Christ ourselves. And when we do this, we do this by applying it to their sin against us and wiping it away and getting rid of it. So when sin happens, our assessment of how we should respond must begin with looking at Jesus Christ rather than sitting around, staying up at all hours of the night, being miserable, thinking about the motives or the reasons or why this person did this, spending hours, days, months, sometimes even years, wondering how this person could do such a thing to me, our response should say, or our response should be, look at all that Christ has done for me. Look at the grace that God has given me through Jesus Christ. And if God forgives me, can I not forgive this person? Can I not show graciousness by forgiving the person who has sinned against me. So the beginning of restoring the repentant is, is applying the grace that we have received to our offender, but, but it doesn't end there. Because it's not just that we wipe away their sin against us. It's actually that we're supposed to play a meaningful role in this person's life. Paul says to forgive and comfort this person. So we restore the repentant not just by applying grace to their sin against us. We restore the repentant by encouraging them with the enabling grace that God gives us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word comfort, I I think that when we hear the word comfort, we're probably thinking of some kind of a like healing of some kind of like a bedside conversation where we're like helping to heal someone's wounds with our words or helping somebody navigate a difficult circumstance in life. But but the comfort that this is referring or the comfort that this is referring to is is a form of encouragement, a form of encouragement that instills this person with spiritual fortitude so that they can go from this and walk in joyful obedience to Jesus Christ. It's, it's a work of strengthening and encouraging this brother or sister. It's, it's intentionally building up the repentant so that they can live in joyful obedience to the Lord. <clears throat> Before I moved here, I worked in a maintenance job. And um, my boss happened to be my dad. Uh, so you know that the, the, there's, some, there's some things that happen when that's going on. And, and uh, we were having this ongoing problem or something like that. And my dad was, was offering some, some good suggestions. And I, and I kind of just like snarked off at him, right? And I felt convicted about that. And I went to him later. And then I went up into his office. And um, I was like, look, Dad, um, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have spoke to you that way. That was dishonoring to you, um, and that was not right. And and if you knew my dad, you would know he's kind of a funny guy, and he kind of got a big smirk on his face, and he started rubbing his hands together, and he smiled, and he said, okay, since I got you here, I wonder what else I can get you for. And, and you know, I know, like, he's joking there, but but I think that that reflects 
a reality of how we want to treat people when they come to us in repentance for their sin. We don't naturally lean toward mercy. We naturally lean toward perverted justice. We, we naturally lean toward how much does this person owe me and add even interest to that. We, we don't typically look at this as an opportunity for this person to love Christ more through their repentance. So our goal for restoration, if somebody is truly repentant of their sin, is not to make them re-examine and obsess over their faults against us. It's to help them remember and obsess over what Jesus Christ has done for their sin and will do for them. We don't want to make a person obsess over their faults and make them miserable because of their sin. We want them to walk away from, from their conversation with us rejoicing because Jesus Christ has dealt with their sin and Jesus Christ will enable them to live a life that is pleasing to them. So we don't just apply the gospel to their offense against us. We must also intentionally build people up by helping them to embrace and apply the truth of the gospel for themselves so they can walk in obedience after this. So we should intentionally strengthen the repentant by helping them to embrace and and apply the gospel to their own lives. But we don't just do that either. We see in verse 8, Paul says that, he, or he says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So restoration is forgiving the offender of their sin by applying the grace that we have received from Christ to them, um, comforting them or encouraging them with the truth of the gospel so that they can live in joyful obedience. But we also must restore the repentant by applying the love that we have received from Christ to the fellowship that was broken because of their sin. This this word here, when he says, reaffirm your love for them, for him, it, it describes a formal act of confirmation. I think it, that it lends itself to the context of what's going on, that it's probably referring to the formal act of the church, bringing the person before the church for them to be reaffirmed into the fellowship of the church. But Paul is saying here, he says, I beg you, I exhort you, affirm your love for the repentant person. Yeah, I wrote to you out of affliction and pain to deal with this person's sin, but now I'm writing you with the same zeal for restoration. The point being made here is that the same zeal that we have for disciplining sin should be at least equal, if not more, for restoring this person, for restoring the fellowship that was broken. And the reality is that we are not going to be able to do this if we are drawing from empty wells. The only way that we're actually going to be zealous for restoration is if, is if we are cherishing the love that Jesus Christ has given us. Scripture tells us that Jesus died for us when we were still his enemies. And I already mentioned that even when Jesus was on the cross, he was saying, forgive them, Lord. They don't forgive them, God, Father. <laughs> they don't know what they do. And this truth, this truth, that Jesus Christ died for his enemies and that he loves us has to captivate our hearts if we're going to offer the kind of grace that restores fellowship among fallen and sinful people. 
we have to recognize that the love that we have from God because of Christ is the same love that propels us forward in affirming and restoring the fellowship that was broken because of sin. That's, that's the point of 1 John 4, 19-21 when he says, we love because God first loved us. And he goes on to say that if, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So restoration is not some like external welcoming of someone back into fellowship while we secretly keep a tab against them in our hearts. Restoration of fellowship is saying, man, God has wiped away my sins. And I'm going to do the same for this person. God, God has never forsaken me. He has kept his relationship with me. He has sustained me. And I want to offer this to this person. I want to offer fellowship to this person because of the way that God loves me. And, and as I mentioned, this, this reaffirming of love here is, is a formal affirmation. And, and I said that it's, it's probably referring to the formal reinstatement of this person into the church. But, but I would say that the principle of, of formally affirming our love for somebody who is repentant of their sin is a really good principle to have. And, and let me just tell you what I, why I'm saying that, what I mean by that. I, I think that we should formally affirm our love when someone seeks forgiveness from us so that this person has no doubts as to whether our relationship is restored, as to whether our fellowship is restored. Now, I'm not saying that like, Every time you have an argument with your wife, you need to have like a, or husband, you need to have a formal meeting in your living room. I, what I'm saying is that we need to be intentional about it and actually communicate to this person. Look, you are forgiven. Our relationship is restored. I love you and I am happy to worship the Lord with you and serve alongside of you. So. We, we want to restore the repentant by helping them regain their spiritual footing so that they can walk in obedience to Christ. And we accomplish this by forgiving them as Christ has forgiven us, by encouraging them to walk in obedience to Christ, by applying the, helping them to apply the gospel to their lives, and affirming our love for them with the same love that God has given to us. It's a pretty basic and simple idea and it looks really good on paper, and it's really hard to live out. But we should want to be people who are regularly rejoicing in God's grace in our lives, so much so that it overflows in our interactions with other people. When our hearts are filled with gratitude for the grace that Christ has given us, we will want to offer forgiveness to other people. We will readily apply that grace to others' spiritual shortcomings. Because we cherish Jesus Christ. And we're told here that this also, when, when we are living this way, when we are people who are offering the grace to others that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, it actually guards us against <clears throat> self-destructive sorrow and Satan's destructive designs for the church. So the first reason here, why we should do this, he's giving us reasons for why we should do this. I see it in verse 7. He says that we should turn to forgive and comfort this person or he may be overwhelmed 
by excessive sorrow. So the first reason why we should do this, other than the fact that God has given us an immense amount of grace, is because it guards the genuinely repentant from destroying themselves with sorrow. This this phrase is actually painting like a, a word picture here. When it says overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, this word overwhelmed means to, to be to be drowning or swallowed up or to be devoured by something. It's actually the word that the author of Hebrews uses to describe the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And this phrase for excessive sorrow, it, it speaks of an inordinate amount of grief. It's It's depression caused by spiritual failure. This is an emphatic picture of somebody who is drowning in their sorrow because of the guilt that has come upon them for their sin. And what we're being told here is that when someone has sinned and has done everything necessary to seek genuine repentance, a real danger exists if we do not restore this person when they are genuinely repentant. And I think that what we should see from this is that we should not expect more from people who are repenting of their sin than what God requires of them. You know, if if we find ourselves demanding more than what God does for someone to repent of their sin, we are exposing them to the possibility of them drowning in sorrow because we are binding their conscience to guilt that God has already forgiven them. And when we do this, we create a false guilt with real feelings of shame that they cannot get rid of because, <clears throat> because we are denying the credibility of their repentance and we are denying the credibility of their confession of Christ. And rather than enabling them to walk in joyful obedience, we are helping them to walk in misery. God has invested great authority into the church to set people free from the guilt of their sin. And and he says that in some sense, in some measure, our confession of Christ is made credible by the acceptance and the affirmation of the church. When Christ said he was going to build his church, he gave the the church the authority to loose and bind people from their sin. And Christ says that true followers of Christ will remain in the fellowship of God's people. So if we are withholding that fellowship from this person, we are telling them that we do not think their confession of Christ is credible. And sometimes this is warranted. But but as I've mentioned, we're talking about somebody who has genuinely repented of their sins. And, And when we withhold restoration to those who are truly repentant, We are demanding more from them than what God does, and we are becoming pharisaical. We are tying up burdens on these people that God himself has not tied up on them. You know, the ramifications of unforgiveness can be devastating to someone if they are truly seeking forgiveness and are truly repentant. I I think an illustration of this is of a child who grows up in a graceless, performance based perfectionist home where no matter how much the child does, they can't seem to satisfy their parents. And so no matter how much improvement, no matter how good they do, the parent is never truly satisfied in their child. And and what ends up happening? 
the child gives up in despair. The child says, I'm done with it. Because there's never any restoration. I keep working harder and harder and it's never enough. And, and that's, that's similar to what happens if someone is truly repentant of their sin and we keep raising the bar so they have to keep doing more, but we never actually restore them. We're setting them up for that same kind of despair. Now, I think a helpful um, analogy, I, I know that Judas wasn't uh, truly repentant, but, but I think we, we can recognize that part of Judas's downfall was that he was not able to experience forgiveness for his sin. He, he went and tried to give the money back, and, and that didn't work. And then what did he do? He went out into the wilderness in his despair, and he ended it. Because that was the only way he knew how to end it. And we don't want to be people like that. We don't want to be people who, who send our brothers and sisters out into the wilderness of despair. We don't want to be those who do not welcome them back as Christ has welcomed us. We, we want to welcome these people into our hearts and lives so that they can go on to have a flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to be people who forgive so that they are not swallowed up by their sin. And the second reason that he gives us in this passage is that we should restore the repentant because it guards against Satan's destructive devices. Look at verse 11. It says, well, I'll start in verse 10. It says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This gives us really good insight to how our enemy Satan works against us. The first thing we see here is that Satan is a strategizing opportunist who seeks to destroy the members and mission of the church. And he does this through trying to pollute the minds of believers. I know it's like a big statement and we're going to unpack it a little bit. But the first thing we see here is that Satan strategizes against the church. He says, Paul says that we should forgive so that we would not be outwitted. And then he goes on to say, we are not ignorant of his designs. These designs are describing the various strategies Satan uses to infiltrate our lives and to destroy our lives. But secondly, we see that Satan is an opportunist seeking to take advantage of us. When it says here, when it speaks of being outwitted by Satan, this, this is referring to someone taking advantage of another. And, and if you're wondering about Satan being an opportunist, I think that the best, the best example of this in Scripture is when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And, and when the temptations ended, it says that he left him until an opportune time. So Satan is an opportunist who is strategizing for our downfall. And he seeks opportunities to destroy us. In a very real sense, <clears throat> Satan is an opportunist who is just looking for opportunities to pollute our hearts and minds so that he would make us ineffective for Christ and so that he would ruin the good things that God does and continues to do in our lives. And he does this by getting us to believe ideas and adopt ideas that are contrary to God's will. And, and one of the ways that is very clear that he finds a foothold in people's life is through unforgiveness. 
I think Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 makes that really clear. If we, if we adopt a lifestyle of unforgiveness and bitterness, we give an opportunity to Satan. We are allowing him an opportunity to implement his strategy so that he can wreak havoc in our lives. Let's just consider like a couple examples of this. I think one of the ways he does this is, is through unforgiveness, he uses unforgiveness as an opportunity to cause division among us so that we will not be effective in accomplishing the mission that Christ has given to his church. You know, one of the realities of sin among God's people is that it wreaks havoc on our relationships and it wreaks havoc on our unity with one another. And, and if, if people, if, uh, if we um, take up these hearts of unforgiveness and we become bitter toward one another and we create these groups that are at war with each other, the church will be consumed with trying to mitigate the effects of sin in the church rather than seeking the lost rather than fulfilling the great commission that we were given, rather than trying to disciple one another and encourage one another, we will be consumed by our sin because it will take all of our time to just try to keep people together. But Satan doesn't just do this in the church. I think that Satan does this in our homes when we're unforgiving. Satan uses unforgiveness to destroy our homes. I mean, Satan finds a safe haven in a home where forgiveness never takes place. I mean, if, if conflict is never resolved because people have taken up a heart of unforgiveness, conflict will never be solved because every time there's a conflict, all the other conflicts come up. And what ends up happening is that you find this snowball effect that every time a little thing happens in your house, you're dealing with things from years ago. You wonder why something like leaving a a cap off from a tube of toothpaste leads to talking about something that happened two years ago. It's because we haven't forgiven that person for what happened two years ago. And Satan loves this. He loves this because it destroys fellowship. It destroys friendship. And, and he loves a harsh home where he can incubate people to make them view the world from a harsh and graceless perspective. Satan loves to find a foothold in our lives through unforgiveness. So one of the things that we should be awestruck by often is that our all-knowing God does not keep a catalog of our sin when we come to him in repentance. Could you imagine what that would be like if every time we came to Christ, we had to rehash every sin we've committed but he doesn't do that. And that should amaze us. That should fill our hearts with joy. And, and do you know what is, is one of the, the good things about being sinned against, I guess? All, all hardship aside. It gives us the grand opportunity to reflect on what Christ has done for us so that we can extend that to another person. It gives us the grand opportunity to give what we enjoy about Christ to another person. As recipients of God's grace, we ought to be reciprocators of his grace as well. 
When someone repents of their sin, we, we have an opportunity through forgiveness to send this person on their way rejoicing in the forgiveness that God gives us in Jesus Christ. God has given us that ability because he has given us his word and we can apply that word to the repentant person's life, restore them so that they can live a life of joyful obedience to Jesus Christ. And when we have this approach toward people who are truly repentant of their sin, it guards the church. It guards the church from Satan finding a foothold for unforgiveness and dividing us and making us ineffective for Christ. And it it guards our homes. It guards our homes from becoming a graceless, harsh, legalistic home. And And it guards the person who's coming to us in repentance. It guards them from destroying themselves in the sorrow of sin. So the question I have is, do you have difficult people in your life? I think... As a bunch of fallen people, we all have difficult people in our lives. And what Christ calls on us to do is to apply the grace that he's given us to those people whom God has given us and whom God has given us an opportunity to reflect on what he has done for us and Jesus' death and resurrection and to apply that to their lives and to enable them by encouraging them to walk in that truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. Lord, I thank you that you actually give us a real basis to forgive people, that we don't just have some self-preserving selfishness where we forgive people so that we can just have a, a problemless life. Lord, I thank you that you are a forgiving God and that you will forgive those who come to your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just pray that as as we begin this year, I pray that this might be a year where we would be people who are ready to restore those who repent of their sin and that we would be people who are gracious, Lord. That you would help to build the unity in our church, strengthen us so that we would honor you in our relationships with one another and that in our relationships, Lord, you would be magnified because we apply the grace that you've given us to one another. Again, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this truth. In Christ's name, amen.